1: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 382... I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Guess what, man? We have Kim Stanley Robinson. Two stories by Kim Stanley Robinson coming into today's Sure, How cool is that? I'll tell you what's up for today, then. First off, we have Purple Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson. Then we've got part two of our Amy H. Sturgis looking back at genre history. Then the main fiction is Discovering Life by Kim Stanley Robinson. How cool is that show? Oh yes, oh yes. So, before we get into everything, just remind that this show is sponsored by Oxygen Technologies who are now able to supply hosted exchange services for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the criminal justice secure email. Booyaka! Go on there, Clive. 20 years of fixing people's computers. They used to drive the clients. Now they're able to do it remotely across the internet. How cool is that? Like I say, 1995 to 2015, Oxygen Technology, Helping businesses with their IT problems. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. So yes, two stories by Kim Stanley Robinson and a fact article by our one and only Amy H. Sturgis. How cool is that? But, oh, wait, 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 wait. The launch of my YouTube channel is upon us, yes, yes. There is now three videos in there to get your kind of teeth going, kind of get you chattering about. And it's actually what I'm really like. It's just like, it's like, honestly, it's like all school starships. over. I'm really enjoying kind of the, the research, you know what I mean? The kind of digging into things and, and talking about things. I've got a few kind of sitting in the wings, ready to go up. And one of them is like a, it's a I think it's like going to be a two-parter on Alfred Bester, And just digging back into the kind of history and the life of Alfred Bester. Do you know what I mean? It's just fantastic. I just put up one there about Philip K. Dix, the collection, We Can Remember It For You wholesale. You know, the kind of story that kind of spurned Total Recall. And just delving into that world, you know, that kind of forgotten world of these science fiction writers. Just fantastic. Do you know what I mean? I, I stick one up there. The worst science fiction books ever. And I put one up there. The best short story. If you want to find out what my best short story is, best ever short story, go over to the kind of YouTube. I'll put a little link on and you can kind of go over. Honestly, please subscribe. I'm having a blast doing it. Do you know what I mean? I kind of face for radio, but really enjoying it. You know, I don't even kind of bother looking at that bit. And the kind of learning curve, man, I'm going through with this bloody final cut pro. <gasps> Do you know what I mean? Just yeah, it's easy when you kind of know your little thing, but as soon as you kind of go off your track and you get a bit lost and, and things are kind of, you've done something, and you, it's when you're trying to get back onto the kind of straight and narrow. Do you know what I mean? hours man, one day doing, doing one of the shows. Do you know what I mean? I kind of just, oh, it's all coming back, this learning curve. So please pop over. It would be fantastic to see you over there. Like you say, just talking about these great writers, do you know what I mean? And the great stories. And I'm, I, I see it on, I think it's on the, on the Alfred Bester one. You know, it's, it's picking those key moments in time. Do you know what I mean? that kind of touch paper that kind of ignited in a way kind of science fiction ran in a totally different direction. That's what I'm kind of loving discovering. Do you know what I mean? These kind of pivotal moments. You know, again, Alfred Bester, that kind of, when that demolished man come out, to me, pers- that's, Oh, that's there. That's there. One of these moments. And i like to say that'll be coming out next week as well. So please, be lovely to see you over there. So first up is, like you say, a little bit short fiction by Kim Stanley Robinson, Purple Mars. And what I'll do as well, Kim Stan or Stan was on the kind of, if you remember, if anyone knows, SofaCon, Kim was on there as well as a guest. Diane Searson interviewed him. I'll put that on the website as well so you can kind of come over and if you wanted to kind of listen to kind of Diane, our fantastic Diane, talking to Kim Stanley Robinson about everything. Do you know what I mean? It was just it was lovely to kind of listen to because we we actually had to record that prior to the event. There were so many complications of trying to get both Diane and Stan. On the day, on that time, and it wasn't going to work, so we recorded it beforehand. And like I say, I sat on it, sat in on it, and and listened to it. You know, just a remarkable, lovely guy, you know. And Diane just perfect at interviewing, brilliant. So that's on the website as well. If you want to come over and have a look at that as well, that would be fantastic. So, like I say, we've got a little "The Purple Mars" by Kim Stanley Robinson. It is narrated by Lulu Sal. Jeremy, our assistant, it's his mum, yes. <laughs> Lulu is a school teacher specializing in English and history, living in Sydney, Australia. She is an author of children's and young adult books and occasionally a writer of fantasy short stories. There you go. Lulu, thank you so much for this. And Stan, just it's, a, it's an honor to kind of play your stories. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present
0: Purple Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson, narrated by Lulu Zal. He crawls out of troubled dreams, half-stunned and begging for coffee, out to the family around the kitchen table. Breakfast, a succession of cassettes as painted by Bonnard or Hogarth. Hey, I'm going to finish my book today. Good. David, hurry up and get dressed, it's almost time for school. David looks up from a book. What? Get dressed, it's almost time. "'Tim, do you want cereal?' "'No.' "'Okay.' He puts Tim back on a chair in front of cereal. "'This okay?' "'No.' Shoveling it in. School time approaches and David begins his daily reenactment of Zeno's paradox, a false conundrum first proposed by Zeno, Concerning Apollo and how, the closer it came time to go to school, the slower Apollo moved, and the less he heard from the surrounding world until he entered an entirely different space-time continuum, interacting very weakly with this one. Wondering how Neutrino Boy can ever have become so absent-minded, his father reads the coffee cups while grinding the beans for his little morning pitcher of Greek coffee. He used to drink espresso, a coffee drink made by vapour extraction, but recently he has advanced to a muddy Greek coffee he makes himself, savouring the smells as he works. On Mars, the thinner atmosphere would not allow him to smell things as well, and so nothing there would taste as good as this morning coffee. In fact, it might be a culinary nightmare on Mars, and everything tasting like dust, partly because it was dusty. But they would adjust to that if they could. Are you ready yet? What? He bundles Tim into the bike cart with a bowl of cereal, bikes behind David through the village to school. It is late summer at the 37th latitude north, and flowers spangle the sides of the bike path. Clouds puff like puffy clouds in the sky. If we were biking to school on Mars, it would be easier to pedal, but we'd be colder. On Venus we'd be colder. Schoolyard full of kids, kids, Have a good day at school. Listen to your teacher. What? He pedals to Tim's daycare, drops him off, then rides quickly home. There, he writes a list of things to do, which makes him feel virtuous and helps to organise his inchoate feeling that there is too much to do, which in itself is helpful, which leads him to think that things aren't really as bad as he thought, which gives him the inspiration to turn the list into a paper airplane and shoot it at the trash can. Not that any causation can be deduced from this sequence, but things will work out, or not. He decides that before working he will mow his lawn. You have to mow a yard before the grass reaches knee-high, especially if you use a push mower, which he does, for reasons ecological, aesthetic, athletic, and psychopathological. His next-door neighbour waves to him and he stops abruptly, stunned by realisation On Mars, these grass clippings would fly out the mower right over my head. I'd have to pull the basket behind me somehow, but the grass wouldn't be as green. You don't think so, says the neighbour. Back inside to recover the list and check off mowing. Then he rushes to his desk, ready to write. Immense concentration brought to bear instantaneously, or at least as soon as he another cup of black mud hits the bloodstream. The first word for the day comes quickly. The. Of course, it might not be the right word. He considers it. Time passes in a double helix of eternal no-time, in the blessing that cannot be spoken. He revises, rewrites, restructures. The phrase grows, shrinks, grows, shrinks, changes colour. He tries it as free verse, sestina, mathematical equation, glossolalia. Finally, he returns to the original formulation, complexifying it with an added nuance. The End It says what needs to be said, and it's twice as many words as his usual daily output. Time to party. The printer prints out the typescript of the novel as he rides over and picks up Tim from daycare. Back at home, he changes the boy's diaper. The boy's protests and the buzzing printer are counterpoint in the warm summer air. Davis warm summer air, 109 degrees, at least in the antiquated Fahrenheit scale used to accommodate 20th century American readers who cannot conceptualize Celsius, not to mention the eminently practical and extremely interesting Kelvin scale, which begins at absolute zero where really one ought to begin. At this moment, it is over 300 Kelvin, unless he has miscalculated. Poor boy, this is a stinky one. Which, when one considers, it is rather amazing. Diapers stink because of volatile gases released from poop. Gases made of organic molecules that did not exist in the earlier stages of the cosmos, among the first generation of stars, Thus, these smells are only possible after enough stars have exploded to saturate the galaxy with complex atoms, so every molecule of the scent is a sign of the immense age of the universe and of life's likely omnipresence as a late emergent phenomenon, and taken as such a cosmological mystery in that it indicates an increase of order in an entropic system, i.e. a miracle. Amazing. The phone rings, carrying him in electrons flying through complicated continuous pathways of metal, the digitised voice of his beloved, recreated in his ear by the vibration of small cones of reinforced cardboard. Ah, hi babe. Hi. A quick interchange of information and endearments ending with, remember to put the potatoes in the oven. Ah, okay, what temperature again? About 375? That's Fahrenheit? Yes. Hey, that reminds me. I had an epiphany when I was changing Tim's diaper. Did you? What was it? Um, Ah. Uh, I forget. Good, but don't forget the potatoes. I won't. I love you. And I love you. When the printer finishes, the stack of paper is waist high. Three, 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 says Tim. Many threes, he agrees, feeling some alarm at the length of the thing as well as guilt for the trees chopped down to publish it, but doubt is the peripheral vision of courageous foresight, a genuine bug crusher, all right. Tim tries to help by pulling out pages and eating them. No, wait, continuity is already abused enough in this, stop that. No. He boxes the typescript in three boxes, fending off the ravenous child. Here, have a cookie. He gives Tim cookies while addressing the boxes, exhibiting that ambidextrous bilateral competence so characteristic of contemporary American parents, all boasting hypertrophic corpus colossums, no doubt could one but see them. All right, let's walk these down to the mailbox. If we hurry, we'll get there before pickup time. I'll have to carry them so you get in the baby backpack, okay? No. In the big boy backpack, then? Yes. Ten minutes of ingenious wrestling gets Tim into the baby backpack and onto his back, a victory on points only as his lip is split and he is now vulnerable to earboxing. Ow! Stop that! No! Now a squat to pick up the three boxes and his ears are grabbed rather than boxed as Tim tries to stay in the backpack. A mighty jerk and lift as he is standing, toddler counterbalancing the weight of the boxes cradled against his chest. Oh, this would be 62% easier on Mars. Here, let's see if we can walk. No problem. Oh, the door isn't open. Um, Here, can you open it, Tim? Just twist the knob, please. Here, I'll bend over just a bit more. Oops. Oh, never mind. I can do it now. Here, let me do it. Let me. No. Okay, we're up again. We're off. Ah, what about the potatoes in the oven? Will we remember that when we get back? No. Yes, we will. Tell you what, I'll leave the door open and when we see it, we'll say, Oh yeah, door open, put potatoes in oven. Off we go. Into the street, winding village lane flanked by flowers and trees, terraforming at its finest. Flat desert valley now blooming with plants from all over the planet all overlooked in the long march to the post box, carrying 40 kilos of paper and a writhing toddler. Ah, oh, ow! Sweating, trembling, he reaches the post box and rests his load on top. We made it, we're here at last. Can you believe it? No. The typescript boxes are almost too big to fit through the slot. Push them in. A nearby stick will serve well. Beat them through one by one. You should have eaten a few more pages. I know just which ones I should have given you. No. Last one through, mission accomplished. He stands there for a moment, sweat overwhelming the evolutionary purpose of his eyebrows and stinging even his spirit's vision. Let's go home. No. They start back down the lane. The sun is setting at the end of the street and the clouds in the western sky have turned gold, orange, bronze, violaceous, burgundy, pewter and a touch of chartreuse. Walk on my friend, walk on. Even if posterity laughs at the silly boxed lives we lead in the late 20th century, even if we deserve to be laughed at, which we do, there are still these moments of freedom we give ourselves, walking down a lane at sunset with a child babbling on one's back. Oops, we left the door open. Like a Zen master, his boy whacks him on the side of the head and at that moment he experiences an enlightenment or satori. The planet wheels underfoot. The signifier signifies a great significance. And the potatoes are to go in the oven. Happiness makes him light on his feet. Very light. So light that he's almost floating. So light that if you tried to quantify this quality, you could put him on the scale of human feeling and weigh him. His weight in Terran kilograms would clock in at exactly 3.141592653589793238462643383279502884197.
1: There you go, don't forget, by God, by God, <laughs> copyright is Stan. Stan. Stan, thank you so much for that. Lulu, what can I say? Ho-ho, thank you so much. Don't forget, like you see, we are sponsored by Octagon Technologies. Big thank you to Octagon Technologies, sponsoring the show and SofaCon. So next up is a bit of fact articles. Our very own Amy H. Sturgis with kind of part two of looking back at genre history. IMS
2: Hello ladies and gentlemen, it's time for another look back into genre history. When we last spoke, I was discussing the political thought of Mary Wollstonecraft, setting up the idea that Wollstonecraft's ideas influenced the writing of her daughter, Mary Shelley. Key to Wollstonecraft's thought is the idea that there's a responsibility to educate young women in order to allow them to develop their reason and rationality so that they may take self-responsibility and become independent thinkers and individuals. I left off by discussing the marriage of Mary Wollstonecraft and William Godwin and the birth of Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, who would become, later, Mary Shelley, on August thirtieth, 1797. Mary Wollstonecraft died 10 days after giving birth. William Godwin implemented his wife's ideas about the education of young women, and Mary Shelley would grow up to be a very well educated young woman indeed. He also thought so highly of his late wife that he published Memoirs of the Author of A Vindication of the Rights of Woman in 1798. He believed he was paying tribute to her by showing how unconventional and unrestrained by taboo and true to herself Mary Wollstonecraft had been. But as he was describing with love and compassion and sincerity Mary Wollstonecraft's life, many readers were shocked that he would reveal these details. For example, uh, Wollstonecraft's illegitimate daughter, her love affairs, her sexual liberation, and in the very darkest moment of her life, her suicide attempts. This biography, far from showing that Wollstonecraft tried very hard to live up to the principles in which she believed, in fact made a very famous thinker quite infamous Now, she would be read and venerated by the Romantics and by political activists and radicals of many stripes, but her general reputation didn't really rebound from this until women's rights activists and later feminist scholarship gave her her rightful place as a pioneering philosopher. Now, I'd be remiss right here if I didn't point out that in 1881, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony published their first volume of History of Suffrage, Wollstonecraft was at the top of their list of heroic women who had inspired them. Carrie Chapman Catt, the president of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance, set the very first annual meeting in 1909 on Wollstonecraft's birthday in honor of her vision. And female authors such as Marianne Evans, who is better known as George Eliot, and Virginia Woolf, wrote in praise of Wollstonecraft's influence on their own lives as well. The same year that Godwin published the ultimately disastrous biography of his late wife, he published an unfinished novel by Wollstonecraft called Maria or the Wrongs of Woman. It is a radical novel work. It is most often viewed as a fictionalized popularization of her nonfiction work, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. It is a novel that is remarkably ahead of its time. It's the story of a woman imprisoned in an insane asylum by her husband. Now, first of all, this could be done at the time, quite legally, without proving that there was mental disturbance or illness in the woman. In other words, a husband could have his wife committed simply because she was inconvenient to him or because he wanted to get his hands on her property without her knowledge. The description of the insane asylum was based on careful research. Mary Wollstonecraft had gone to the infamous Bedlam and seen the horrendous conditions in which the mentally ill and the inconvenient were kept. And she took that information and enfolded that experience in her novel the story criticizes what Wollstonecraft viewed as the patriarchal institution of marriage in 18th century Britain and the legal system that protected it. This was also, as was the novel Mary before it, a criticism of the novels of sensibility, the sentimental works that were considered to be, well, chick in the 19th century – there was lots of swooning, lots of sighing, lots of weeping, but these works did not speak at all to the intellect, to thought. It was all about emotion. And Wollstonecraft thought that that acted as a kind of miseducation for women, that it promoted the wrong ideas of how people behave, that it essentially fed uh, a very saccharine and insubstantial diet to the minds of women readers. And so she played that out in the novel Maria by having her heroine unable to relinquish her romantic fantasies, um, these fantasies that she had adopted because she had read the damaging sentimentalism of these novels. The novel also pioneered the celebration of female sexuality and cross-class identification between women that is, the woman in charge of Maria in the asylum, her nurse essentially, comes from a completely different class and background and life experiences, and yet together they bond over the common experience of being a woman in an economically and legally uh, defenseless or helpless state. As you can imagine, there was also an extended critique of how the science – I think Mary Wollstonecraft would have put that term in scare quotes if scare quotes had existed at the time. The science of uh, mental health and mental illness really had become the tool of the powerful against the powerless. So you can see here Mary Wollstonecraft left behind her a substantial body of writing, both nonfiction and fiction. And her daughter, Little Mary born in 1797, who would live until 1851. One day, to be justly famous as Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein and The Last Man, among many other works, and thus mother of modern science fiction, inherited quite an inspiration and role model. In the words of Charlotte Gordon, author of Romantic Outlaws, The Extraordinary Lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and Her Daughter Mary Shelley, which will be published in the summer of 2015. I had the good fortune of reading an early copy of that. I highly recommend it. Charlotte Gordon says, "...Mary Shelley was a staunch disciple of her mother. Her body of work is notable for her commitment to the rights of women, as well as the bleak picture she painted of unchecked male ambition. She had devoted her life to upholding her mother's philosophy." In all of her work, she emphasized the importance of the independence and education of women and critiqued the traditionally male values of conquest. Mary Shelley would go on to write six novels, two travel books, more than two dozen short stories, and a multitude of essays and reviews, as well as achieve notable editorial work. In 1827, she wrote a friend, "'The memory of my mother has always been the pride and delight of my life,' and the admiration of others for her has been the cause of most of the happiness. Indeed, she bonded with her future husband, the romantic poet Percy Shelley, over his admiration of Wollstonecraft's writings. They would meet, in fact, at Wollstonecraft's grave in secret, and they would read Wollstonecraft's work to each other. Hey, in the 18-teens, that was considered to be a seriously smoking date. And like her free-thinking and liberated mother, Mary's lifestyle would become, in a way, as famous as her work. At 16, she ran away with the then-married Shelley, and she had several children by him out of wedlock, although, sadly, only one ultimately survived infancy. She was part of an intellectual circle that included Lord Byron, known as Mad, Bad, and Dangerous to Know, And having been provided, according to her mother's wishes, with an excellent education, she was quite in her element with this romantic circle. And as has been recounted over and over again, on the night of June sixteenth, 1816, the famous year without a summer, Mary and Percy could not return to the house where they were staying there in Switzerland after running off together. Due to an incredible storm. And so they spent the night at the Via Diodati with Byron and his doctor, Polidori. The group read aloud a collection of German ghost stories, the Phantasmagoriana. In one of the stories, a group of travelers relate to one another supernatural experiences that they witnessed. And this inspired Byron to challenge the group to write a scary story. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's worth pointing out that in writing her scary story, Mary Shelley did something that her mother would have greatly approved of. She was ultimately quite rational, quite logical, quite reasonable. She took a convention that already existed, the Gothic, in fact, particularly the Gothic explained, which was pioneered by the mother of the Gothic, Anne Radcliffe. The Gothic Explained was a kind of storytelling technique in which a series of incredible, seemingly supernatural events transpire. And then, at the very end of the novel, the author explains exactly how all of those incredible events have rational explanations behind them. For example, that monk wasn't an insubstantial ghost who could just appear, poof, uh, out of nowhere. In fact, that monk designed the catacombs that ran under the building and created trap doors and secret passages uh, specifically for the purposes of hopping out and surprising people. And so that sudden appearance of the character can clearly be explained by mundane circumstances. Mary would take that concept. It sounds bizarre. It sounds fantastic. But it can ultimately be explained. And she flipped it. Putting the explanation first, in the beginning of her work, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, she explains that with all that is presently known to science, Galvanism, etc., that the ideas behind the reanimation of dead matter could happen. For example, she incorporated ideas that came from the group's reading of Germain de Stael's Dalamagna on, quote, whether the principle of life could be discovered and whether scientists could galvanize a corpse of manufactured humanoid. So rather than string the audience along thinking something was supernatural and finally explain it, she explains it up front, playing to the reader's reason, to the reader's rationality, and then goes on to describe the fantastic tale of Frankenstein. And in Flipping the Gothic Explained, Mary Shelley became the mother of modern science fiction. And so I will leave you here. And when we next meet, I will discuss in some detail Frankenstein and the Last Man by Mary Shelley. I look forward to joining you again very soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you.
1: Amy, thank you so much. We have part three to that little fact article as well, that looking back at genre history. And don't forget, Amy is school teacher again this summer with her summer online course. Literary conocopicus <laughs> The cosmic fiction of HP Lovecraft. Like I say, I'll put all the links in there. You know, we've got information going on in there, and there's a YouTube video as well from him. So do if you if you kinda want to, you know, have something for the something to do over the summer months. Have a you know, you couldn't do better than going over and, and checking out and getting taught off EMI H Sturgis. There you go. So undo the main fiction today and it is Discovering Life by Kim Stanley Robinson. If anyone wants a little or by Stan, Robinson began publishing novels in 1984. His work has been described as humanist science fiction and literary science fiction. Robinson himself has been a proud defender and advocate of science fiction as a genre, which he regards as one of the most powerful of all literary forms. Go on there, Stan. Right there, right there. That's what it's all about. This story is narrated by Krista Storia. Now, I have just butchered that word, but Krista, thank you so much for this. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
3: Discovering Life by Kim Stanley Robinson The final approach to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a narrow road running up the flank of the ugly brown mountains overlooking Los Angeles, is a fine road in ordinary circumstances but when something newsworthy occurs, it is inadequate to handle the influx of media visitors. On this morning, the line of cars and trailers extended down from the security gate almost to the freeway off-ramp, and Bill Dawkins watched the temperature gauge of his old Ford Escort rise as he inched forward, all the vehicles adding to the smog that already made the air a tangible grey mist. Eventually, he passed the security guards and drove up to the employee parking lot, then walked down past the guest parking lot, overflowing with TV trailers topped by satellite dishes. Surely every language and nation in the world was represented, all bringing their own equipment, of course. Inside the entry building, Bill turned right and looked in the press conference room, also jammed to overflowing. A row of Bill's colleagues sat up on the stage behind a long table crowded with mics, facing the cameras and lights and reporters. Bill's friend Mike Collinsworth was answering a question about contamination, trying to look like he was enjoying himself. But very few scientists like other scientists listening in on them when they are explaining things to non-scientists, because then there is someone there to witness just how gross their gross simplifications are. So an affair like this was, in its very nature, embarrassing. And to complicate the situation, this press corps was a very mixed crowd— ranging from experts who, in some senses—social context, historical background—knew more than the scientists themselves, all the way to TV faces who could barely read their prompters. That, plus the emotional load of the subject matter amounting almost to hysteria, gave the event an excruciating quality that Bill found perversely fascinating to watch. A telegenic young woman got the nod from John and took the radio mic being passed around, What does this discovery mean to you? she asked. What do you think the meaning of this discovery will be? The seven men on stage looked at each other, and the crowd laughed. John said, Mike? And Mike made a face that got another laugh. But John knew his crew. Mike was a smartass in real life. Indeed, Bill could imagine some of his characteristic answers scorching the air. It means I have to answer stupid questions in front of billions of people... It means I can stop working 80-hour weeks and see what a real life is like again. But Mike was also good at the PR stuff, and with a straight face, he answered the second of the questions, which Bill would have thought was the harder of the two. Well, the meaning of it depends, to some extent, on what the exobiologists find out when they investigate the organisms more fully. If the organisms follow the same biochemical principles as life on Earth, then it's possible they are a kind of cousin to Terran life, bounced on meteorites from Mars to here, or here to Mars. If that's the case, then it's possible that DNA analysis will even be able to determine about when the two families parted company, and which planet has the older population. We may find out that we're all Martians originally. He waited for the obligatory laugh. On the other hand, the investigation may show a completely alien biochemistry, indicating a separate origin. That's a very different scenario. Now Mike paused, realizing he was at the edge of his soundbite envelope, also of deep waters. He decided to cut it short. Either way, that turns out, we'll know that life is very adaptable, and that it can either cross space between planets, or begin twice in the same solar system. So either way, we'll be safer in assuming that life is fairly widespread in the universe. Bill smiled. Mike was good. The answer provided a quick summary of the situation. Bullet points, potential headlines. Bacteria on Mars proves life is common in the universe. Which wasn't exactly true, but there was no winning the soundbite game. Bill left the room and crossed the little plaza, then entered the big building forming the north flank of the compound. Upstairs, the little offices and cubicles all had their doors open and portable TVs on. All tuned to the press conference just a hundred yards away. There was a holiday atmosphere including streamers and balloons. But Bill couldn't feel it somehow. There on the screens under the CNN logo, his friends were being played up as heroes. Young, devoted rocket scientists replacing astronauts by necessity as the exploration of Mars proceeded robotically. Silly, but very much preferable to the situation when things went wrong. When they were portrayed as harried geek rocket scientists not quite up to the task which was the extremely important, though underfunded, task of teleoperating the exploration of the cosmos from their desks. They had played both roles several times at JPL, and had come to understand that for the media, and perhaps the public, there was no middle ground. No recognition that they were just people doing their jobs, difficult but interesting jobs, in difficult but not intolerable circumstances. No, for the world, they were a biannual, nine-hours wonder either nerdy heroes or nerdy goats, and the next day, forgotten. That was just the way it was, and not what was bothering Bill. He felt at loose ends. Mission accomplished, his to-do list almost empty. It left him feeling somewhat empty. But that was not it either. He still had phone and email media questions waiting, and he worked through those on automatic pilot, his answers honed by the previous week's work. The lander had drilled down and secured a soil sample from under the sands at the mouth of Shalbatana Vallis, where thermal sensors had detected heat from a volcanic vent, which meant the permafrost ice in that region had liquid percolations in it. The sample had been placed in a metal sphere which had been hermetically sealed and boosted to Martian orbit. After a rendezvous with an orbiter, it had been flown back to Earth and been released in such a manner that it had dropped into Earth's atmosphere without orbiting at all, and slammed into Utah's Dugway Proving Grounds a mere ten yards from its target. An artificial meteorite, yes. No, the ball could not have broken on impact. It had been engineered for that impact. Indeed, could have withstood striking a sidewalk or a wall of steel, and had been recovered intact in the little crater it had made, recovered by robot, and flown robotically to Johnson Space Center in Houston where it had been placed inside hermetically sealed chambers, in sealed labs, in sealed buildings before being opened, everything having been designed for just this purpose. No, they did not need to sterilize Dugway or all of Utah. They did not need to nuke Houston, not to kill Martian bacteria anyway, and all was well. The alien life was safely locked away and could not get out. People were safe. Bill answered a lot of questions like these, feeling that there were many people out there who badly needed a better education in risk assessment. They got in their cars and drove on freeways, smoking cigarettes and holding high-energy radio transmitters against their heads, in order to get to newsrooms where they were greatly concerned to find out if they were in danger from microbacteria locked away behind triple hermetic seals in Houston. By the time Bill broke for lunch, he was feeling more depressed than irritated. People were ignorant, short-sighted, poorly educated, fearful, superstitious, deeply meshed in magical thinking of all kinds. And yet, that too was not really what was bothering him. Mike was in the cafeteria, hungrily downing his lunchtime array of flavonoids and antioxidants, and Bill joined him, feeling cheered. Mike was giving them a low-voiced recap of the morning's press conference. Many journalists were in the JPL cafeteria on guest passes. "'What is the meaning of life?' Mike whispered urgently. "'It means metabolism. It means hunger at lunchtime. Please, God, let us eat. That's what it means.' Then the TVs overhead began to show the press conference in Houston, and like everyone else, they watched and listened to tiny figures on the screen. The exobiologists at Johnson Space Center were making their initial report. The Martian bacteria were around 100 nanometers long— bigger than the fossil nanobacteria tentatively identified in ALH84001, but smaller than most Heron bacteria. They were single-celled. They contained proteins, ribosomes, DNA strands composed of base pairs of adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. Cousins, Mike declared. The DNA resembled certain Terran organisms, like the Columbia Basement Archaea Methanospirillum jacobi possibly they were the descendant of a common ancestor. Cousins! Very possibly mitochondrial DNA analysis would reveal when the split had happened. Separated at birth, one of the Johnson scientists offered to laughter. They were just like the JPL scientists in their on-screen performances. Spontaneous generation versus panspermia, frequent transpermia between Earth and Mars, all these concepts poured out in a half-digested rush and people would still be calling for the nuclear destruction of Houston and Utah in order to save the world from alien infection, from Andromeda strains, from fictional infections, in-fictions, as Mike said with a grin. The Johnson scientists nattered on solemnly, happy still to be in the limelight. It had been an oddity of NASA policy to place the Mars effort so entirely at JPL— In effect, concentrating one of the major endeavors of human history into one small university lab, with many competing labs out there like baby birds in the federal nest, ready to peck JPL's eyes out if given the chance. Now, the exobiology teams at Johnson and Ames were finally involved, and it was no longer just JPL's show, although they were still headquarters and had engineered the sample return operation, just as they had all the previous Martian landers. This diffusion of the project was a relief, of course, but could also be seen as a disappointment. The end of an era. But no, watching the TV, Bill could tell. That wasn't what was bothering him, either. Mike returned with Bill and Nassim to their offices, and they continued to watch the Johnson press conference on a desk TV in Nassim's. Apparently, the sample contained more than one species, perhaps as many as five, maybe more. They just didn't know yet. They thought they could keep them all alive in Mars jars, but weren't sure. They were sure that they had the organisms contained and that there was no danger. Someone asked about ramifications for the human exploration of Mars, and the answers were scattered. Very severely problematized, someone said. It would be a matter for discussion at the very highest levels. NASA, of course, but also NSF, the National Academy of Sciences, the International Astronomical Union... Various UN bodies. In short, the scientific government of the world. Mike laughed. The human mission people must be freaking out. Nassim nodded. The Ad Martim Club has already declared that these things are only bacteria like bathroom scum. We kill billions of them every day. They're no impediment to us conquering Mars. They can't be serious. They are serious, but crazy. We won't be setting foot there for a very long time, if ever. "'Suddenly Bill understood. "'That would be sad,' he said. "'I'm a human's tomorrow's guys myself.' "'Mike grinned and shook his head. "'You better not be in too much of a hurry.' "'Bill went back in his office. "'He cleaned up a little, then called Eleanor's office, "'wanting to talk to her, wanting to say, "'We did it, the mission is a success, "'and the dream has therefore been shattered.' "'But she wasn't in. "'He left a message that he would be home around the usual time.' then concentrated on his to-do list, no longer adding things to the bottom faster than he took them off at the top, trying to occupy his mind, but failing. The realization was sinking in that he had always thought their work was about going to Mars, about making a better world there. This was how he had justified everything about his life, the killing hours of the job, the looks on his family's faces, Eleanor's fully sympathetic but disappointed frustrated that it had turned out this way. The two of them caught despite their best efforts in a kind of 1950s marriage. The husband gone all day, every day. Except, of course, that Eleanor worked long hours too, so that their kids had always been daycare and after-school care kids all day, every weekday. Once Bill had dropped Joe, their younger one, off at daycare on a Monday morning, And looking back in through the window, he had seen an expression on the boy's face of abandonment and stoic solitude, of facing another ten hours at the same old place, to be gotten through somehow like everyone else, a look which on the face of a three-year-old had pierced Bill to the heart. And all that, all the time he had put in, all those days and years, had been so that one day humans would inhabit Mars and make a decent civilization at last. His whole life burned in a cubicle because the start of this great project was so tenuous, because so few people believed or understood so that it was down to them, one little lab trying its best to execute the faster, better, cheaper plan, which contained within it, as they often pointed out, a contradiction of the second law of thermodynamics, among other problems a plan that they knew could only really achieve two out of the three qualities in any real-world combination, but making the attempt anyway, finding that the only true cheaper involved was the cost of their own labor and the quality of their own lives. Rocket scientists running like squirrels in cages to make the inhabitation of Mars a reality, a project which only the future Martians of some distant century would truly appreciate and honor. Except now... There weren't going to be any future Martians. Then it was after six, and he was out in the evening smog with Mike and Nassim, carpooling home. They got on the 210 freeway and rolled along quite nicely until the carpool lane stalled with all the rest because of the intersection of the 210 and the 110, and then they were into stop and go like everyone else. The long lines of cars, brake lighting forward in that accordion pattern of acceleration and deceleration so familiar to them all. The average speed on the L.A. freeway system was now 11 miles per hour, low enough to make them and many other Angelinos try the surface streets instead, but Nassim's computer modeling and their empirical trials had made it clear that for any drive over five miles long, the clogged freeways were still faster than the clogged streets. Well, another red-letter day, Mike announced and pulled a bottle of scotch from his day pack. He snapped open the cap and took a swig, then passed the bottle to Bill and Nassim. This was something he did on ceremonial occasions, after all the great JPL successes or disasters, and though both Bill and Nassim found it alarming, they did not refuse quick pulls. Mike took another one before twisting the cap very tightly on the bottle and stuffing it back inside his day pack, actions which appeared to give him the feeling he had returned the bottle to a legally sealed state. Bill and Nassim had mocked him before for this belief, and now Nassim said, Why don't you just carry a little soldering iron with you so you can reseal it properly? Ha ha. Or adopt the NASA solution, Bill said. Take your swigs and then throw the bottle overboard. Ha ha, now don't be biting the hand that feeds you. That's the hand people always bite. Mike stared at him. You're not happy about this big discovery, are you, Bill? No, Bill said, sitting there with his foot on the brake. No, I always thought we were the... The bringing of the inhabitation of Mars. I thought that people would go on to live there and terraform the planet, you know, establish a whole world there, a second strand of history. And we would always be back at the start of it all. And now these damn bacteria are there already, and we may never land there at all. We'll stay here and leave Mars to the Martians, the bacterial Martians, the little red natives. And so we're at the start of nothing. We're at the start of a dead end. Balderdash, Mike said. And Bill's spirits rose a bit. He felt a glow like the scotch run through him. He may have slaved away in a cubicle burning ten years of his life on the start of a dead-end project, a project that would never be enacted, but at least he had been able to work on it with people like these, like brothers to him now after all the years. Brilliant, weird guys who would use the word balderdash in conversation in all seriousness, because, in Mike's case, he read Victorian boys' literature for his entertainment, among other odd habits. A guy who, in his reality, had not in the slightest way appeared on TV while playing the earnest rocket scientist, playing a stupid role created by the media's questions and expectations, all of them playing their stupid roles in precisely the stupid soap opera that Bill had dreamed they were going to escape someday. What does life mean to you, Dr. Labcote? What does this discovery mean? "'Well, it means we've burned up our lives on a dead-end project. "'What do you mean, Balderdash?' Bill exclaimed. "'They'll make Mars a nature preserve, a bacterial nature preserve, for God's sakes. "'No one will risk even landing there, much less terraforming the place.' "'Sure they will,' Mike said. "'People will go there, eventually. "'They'll settle. They'll terraform, just like you've been dreaming. "'It might take longer than you were thinking, "'but you were never going to be one of the ones going anyway, "'so what's the rush? It'll happen.' I don't think so, Bill said. Sure it will. Whichever way it happens, it'll happen. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Whichever way it happens, it'll happen. That's so very helpful. Not your most testable hypothesis, Nassim noted. Mike grinned. You don't have to test it. It's that good. Harshly, Bill laughed. Too bad you didn't tell the reporter that. Whatever happens will happen. This discovery means whatever it means. And then they were all cackling. This discovery means that there's life on Mars. This discovery means whatever you want it to mean. That's how meaning always means. Their mirth subsided. They were still stuck in stop-and-go traffic, in the row of red blinks on the vast viaduct slashing through the city, under a sour milk sky. Well, shit, Mike said, waving at the view. I guess we'll just have to terraform Earth instead.
1: There you go, don't forget. Copyright is Stan. Stan, thank you so much. Honestly, a big thank you. Like I say, I'll put on Stan's interview with Diane Silverson at the front of this the, uh, the site. And Krista, what can I say? Massive, massive thank you. Thank you so much. So that is Starship Sovas 382 put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, it's an honor to have, you know, kind of a, such a, you know. A big writer is Kim Stanley Robinson, you know, especially on SovaCon and now on kind of Starship Sova as well. Double bill of, kind of Stan's work, just spectacular. Thank you so much. Again, come over, come over to YouTube, man. Let's get up there, get into the kind of the future. See, see what this puppy looks like. <laughs> Listen, to this. Oh, that's the chin, man. That's the stubble. Come over and see the real I am. I would love to see you over there. Honestly, like just see uh, just enjoying like the history of, of science fiction. And actually, I was thinking about doing kind of up to date stuff. You know, there's so much to kind of do, but I might kind of try and do up to date. You know, odd new book as well or new writer. Do you know what I mean? Kind of do like a little kind of show on them. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Until next week, I would just like to see it. Good night from me. Ooh.
2: this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Social Sofa. Evacuation procedure Machine. Shuttle set for us. will opened in three, 2, 1.